and welcome everyone. Let me make a few announcements and then we'll get to page 14 in Biblical Worldview 101. Uh, in March, we have a, a few things coming up that you'll want to make note of. On March the 17th and the 24th, two Sundays in a row, on those evenings from 4.30 to 8, here we're going to have our annual servant seminars. So everybody who's a member of our church, we encourage you to come to that because we lay out our vision for this coming year and the things we'd like to accomplish. And as I said in the first hour, this year in particular, that's important because we now have this facility to carry out ministry that we were not able to do in the past. And so we're going to talk about some of that at those seminars. It's the same seminar offered twice so that we can maximize the number of people who are able to come. So you don't come to both, it's one or the other. And we have a dinner that night, it's a light dinner, subs or something like that, but we do have dinner, therefore we need to know an approximate number of how many are coming each time. And that's why we're asking you to register between now and then. And registering just means giving your name to the folks at the information center. So if you haven't done that already and you know which of those you might attend, the 17th or the 24th, then before you leave today, if you would do that, that would be good, certainly over the next couple of weeks if you could. But we encourage everybody who's a member, if you're not a member, you're welcome to come as well, uh, for sure. But certainly those of you who are members of our church will want to participate if you can. So that's the 17th and the, the 24th. And uh, the uh, 23rd, the Saturday in between those, is a newcomer's brunch at our house. And that's at 10 a.m. It goes to about noon. But if you are, we're in a talkative mood and we get into a discussion solving the world's problems, you're welcome to hang around longer than that. But it is an informal time. We have no agenda. I don't have a booklet of material that I go through. It's just inviting you over to our house for us to get to know you and you us and for us to enjoy a, a meal together. So we would love to have you come. If you've never been to one of the brunches, then consider yourself a newcomer, even if you've been around a good while. But we need to know an approximate number for that as well. So let the folks at the information center know. They'll put your name down. They'll also give you a card that has the address of our place, our phone number, and a reminder of the date and time on it as well. And then on the 16th, March 16th, Saturday the 16th, we have just a, a family fun day uh, at, in the afternoon at Woodhaven Lanes, a couple hours of, of bowling, and that's listed in your program. So a few things coming up in March that you'll want to make, make note of. All right, page 14 in our series, Biblical Worldview 101, and we have broken up this series into three major sections. The three major sections are titled, and I'll explain what these terms mean, but orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Because we're trying to get our arms, our minds around this enormous topic of worldview. Because as the name, the, the term worldview suggests, it is your view of the world. And so that Nothing could be larger than that. It's your view of everything. And so we're trying to get at how you view or we should view everything from a biblical standpoint. But it's an enormous topic, so in order for us to get our minds around it, we need to categorize the issues that we need to consider under that topic of worldview. Our worldview is our perspective, our slant, the way we see all of reality, everything with which we're confronted. And the three categories in which we've placed that are orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. What does that mean? 
Well, orientation means that God created the world. He gave an orientation to himself, his world, and to his first creatures, Adam and Eve. He told them who he is, who they are, and what he expects of them. And so under orientation, you could just say creation, who God is and what he expects from us. That's what that first category is. So the first few lessons of the notebook that many of you have are about that, under that section, orientation. But then there is disorientation. And we named it that because there is this pivotal event that occurs early in human history that affects the way we see everything, the way we view the world. And that is the entrance of sin into God's world, or we call it the the fall. And as a result of the fall, the orientation that God had given to his first creatures, the first man and the first woman, now becomes disoriented. Everything becomes distorted. Nothing is is right. They don't see anything clearly. They once saw it clearly. Now it's all fuzzy. Now the lenses through which they see the world are foggy. They're cracked. They're distorted. That's what sin does. And as a result, they don't see God clearly. As a result, they don't see themselves clearly. And so sin has far-reaching effects. And we call that then disorientation or the fall or who we are and what our problem is. And we're going to conclude disorientation today. And then next week, we'll start with the third section, reorientation. If a biblical worldview stops there with everything that's wrong, and there's a ton wrong because of sin, because of the fall, but if it stops there, then we are miserable indeed. But thanks be to God, He is reorienting His world toward His original design, and He is doing that through the means of Jesus Christ and Christ's followers carrying out his reorientation project in his world. And we're going to see that over our final weeks together. So today, our final lesson in the section on disorientation. It's lesson six, top of page 14, and I call it the mess we is in. I mean, the the mess we is in includes a bunch of messy stuff because of the fall and because of sin. And we're going to look at a number of those categories. Top of page 14, the Bible is all about People in situations before God. People in situations in the presence of God. And some of you have heard me say in, in, other, in other classes that uh, two of those three things have not changed throughout time. God has not changed. And since the fall, people have not changed. So if the Bible is about people in situations bef- in the presence of God, then two of those three are consistent as you read in the Bible the stories of God's interaction with people. God has not changed and people have not changed. And so as you read the narrative stories about that interaction between God and people, we will find ourselves there. And the only thing that differs are the varied situations. But God gives us enough narrative, enough of those stories of His interaction with people that you will find yourself in at least some of those situations as well. They'll be like yours. Two-thirds, two-thirds of your Bible is narrative. Two-thirds of it is the story of God's interaction with people. So when we say the Bible is about people in situations before God, we're going to look at some of those situations. And we're going to see ourselves there, and we're going to see what God is like there. The disorientation resulting from the fall includes both our passive and our active participation. 
That is, because of the fall, we're sometimes victimized by evil. That is, bad stuff happens. And yet, as sinners, we also actively participate in the evil that comprises our fallen world. We're active in both initiating, bad stuff happens because I do it, or in responding, more bad stuff happens as I react to bad stuff. And so in this final lesson, we're going to look at the various ways the fall affects us. So let me re-explain re, uh, that then. We've got two major categories, passive and active. Passive is, there are things that people do to me. So as I live in a fallen world and I'm surrounded by the effects of, of evil, there are things that are perpetrated, things that are done. I am victimized by what happens. But then there's this other category where I am active in what happens. I do evil stuff. I do sinful stuff. And, and so I initiate sinful things. Every person here, sitting here, and, every, and the one standing here, all of us fit into that category from a biblical worldview. We all, at one time or another, initiate sin. But then there are also our reactions to sin that can be sinful. So you can see what a mess we is in. There's the stuff that other people do, there's the stuff I do, and then there's how I react to the stuff that's done to me. And often it is, it is all imbued, it's all affected by, by sin. Now, we like to, as we saw last week, as you look at those categories of stuff that's done to me and then stuff that I do, passive and, and active, we want to shove our problems, our mess, in the passive category. That's what all of us like to do. We don't want to admit that we participate, that we contribute. So we like to have it in the passive category. So we like to focus on what other people have done and what other people are doing and what, other, and what idiots other people are. So, in the words of those great theologians, the Alan Parsons Project, I wouldn't want to be like you. Because look at you. You're a sinner. But, you know, we laugh, we chuckle, even as Christians, we point the finger, we say, look at you, you're a sinner. But if we really believe the Bible, if we look at the world through a biblical lens, the truth is, so am I. But we like to place our mess in the passive category. We like to direct it outside of us toward other people and what they do, and what they do to us, and how what they do affects us. But the Bible will not allow us to do that. A biblical worldview, yes, includes what people do to us, but it also includes what we do and how we react to what's done. So take a look at page 14. There are all of these categories then of disorientation and the things that happen to us and the things that we do. There are general life hardships and limitations, I say, first of all. And the example of the Israelites in the wilderness found in the book of Numbers, chapters 11 through 25, gives a number of examples of how people have things done to them, how people react to what's done to them, how people initiate doing evil and, and harmful things. So you see a list of nine things there. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on each one of these, but you find in that narrative, in that story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, you find their reaction to adversity. They, they, they're in difficult circumstances. 
And as we're going to see in a bit, the way we react to difficult circumstances that are foisted upon us can involve sinful responses that actually make things worse. So there's adversity. Notice number two, boredom. You know, they just became bored with the mundane existence that they had. The same routine, the same diet, they just became bored with the routine of life. Now, we get bored with the routine of life. And this is why there's such a thing as midlife crisis. People get to a certain age, you know, 35, 40. I'll probably, I, I'll, I'll face this when I get there, 35 or 40. <laughs> so it's, it's that obvious. All right, well, good. <laughs> you know, you get to be 35 and, and you're at the, the middle of life and you're just, you know, you're getting up, you're going to work and you're paying the bills and you're doing the same thing. You got the same routine, and you come home, and you know you and your and your spouse and your kids say the say the same things, and you just one day after another, to what end? And you feel like a, a rat on just uh, one of those wheels in the cage, and you're just going through that. And is it going anywhere? So boredom, and then that boredom can in turn cause people then to react in unhelpful ways, to put it mildly, or perception. Number three. And this involves the way the people that Moses led out of Egypt and into the wilderness, how they perceived Moses' motivations. And you'll remember that they questioned Moses' uh, honor and why he was doing this. And he may be in this for himself. Of course, they had no proof of any of that. They had plenty of proof to the contrary. But their sinful minds, they allowed to go in that direction and they drew conclusions about Moses that made things worse. Or we have foisted upon us situations that are dangerous or plans that we thought were going to happen that get delayed. God allows us in frightening and sobering experiences, hardship that we're depleted of, of, of things like water for a period of time, survival even hardships. But then notice number nine, pleasure and tangible security. Those can be temptations for us as well to react to those situations. So all nine of them, if taken together, have one thing in common. If you take all nine of those and if you add it to that, to that list, here's the thing that you want to focus on. You want to ask yourself, where is God in every one of those? Because when, when we participate in these kinds of situations, when we react to these kinds of situations being imposed upon us, when we do all of those things in an unhelpful, sinful way, the one missing ingredient is always going to be, I have not considered God in the equation. I mean, go back and look at it, adversity. All right, so I'm in an adverse, difficult situation. I'm not, I'm not happy about this. This is not pleasant, whatever it is. But if I don't plug God into that situation, I will descend in my, in my thinking about that situation, won't I? This thing will consume me. This thing will obsess me. This thing will control me if God is not on the throne in my thinking. Boredom. So why am I going through the motions? Why am I in this rat race? Why am I doing this every day? And if God is not part of that equation, if there's not some transcendent purpose for which you are living and going to work every day and raising those kids and paying those bills, then indeed it will just become monotonous boredom. Why am I doing all this? The next several lessons in reorientation are going to be about that. 
We're supposed to be participating in God's reorientation of His world. What could be cooler than that? But if you forget that, if you're not plugged into that, then that boredom, that midlife crisis, and all of these unhelpful responses occur. Perception. You know, I've got to, uh, I've got to analyze what's making this person tick. Why is this person doing what they're doing? I don't have evidence for why they're doing it, but I think I know why they're doing it. And I'm going to, I'm going to interact with them on the basis of what I think they're doing what I think their motivation is. You know what? There's somebody who knows absolutely what that person's motivation is. And you don't have to mess around with guessing about it. And if they're doing some things that are questionable in your mind, and you're wondering if they're getting away with something, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think they're up to no good. I think they are ill-motivated. If you plug God into that situation, guess what? Forgive the grammar, ain't nobody getting away with nothing. Right? So I don't have to take matters into my own hands. I don't have to obsess about why he said this or why he did that or why she did this or why she did that. I can give this to God and let God take care of it. Do the right thing, take the next step. Danger? Can God remove me from this danger? Can God help me through this danger? No, I don't know. You know, has anybody ever been, I don't know, say, put in a den with a bunch of lions that are hungry? And lo and behold, or thrown into a fiery furnace. We're dealing with that on Wednesday nights. You know, can God deliver me from these things? Absolutely. And, and, and what if I die? Well, if I die, I'm delivered in another way. I'm now delivered from the entire mess we is in and delivered into his presence, but, but I'm plugging God into the situation. Now you can see, you can go down this, this, every bit of this list and you ask yourself, how does God fit in the situation? And you can only have a biblical view of the world if the way you look at yourself, others, and our circumstances has God at the center. And if God is not at the center of how we view all of that stuff, then we are going to take a secular, sinful, unbiblical view of the world. I remember uh, years ago my wife counseling a a woman uh, in our previous church, our parent church, years ago. And the lady had asked for Kim to meet with her. They went out for coffee. And the gal started pouring out her, her difficulties and how she was viewing that and what was going on in her life. And Kim listened over a long period of time. And then uh, Kim just said, as she is wont to do, meekly and sweet and all that junk, like she does to me. And then it zings the heart. And she just says, what about God? I mean, in this whole litany of things that this lady had laid out, One important person is missing. God. What about God in all of that you laid out? And then they started to think about how God fits into this. What might God be doing in this? What does God say he has for you in these things you've been talking about? That's a radically different perspective, isn't it? But it's one, if we're honest, we so easily forget. So a biblical worldview views... 
All of these kinds of things, adversity and boredom and perception and danger and so on, through the lens of God being in control and a good God being in control. So we see that in the example of God's people in the wilderness. And also, bottom of page 14, famously James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. We're concluding the book of James. Several months ago, we went through that passage. So you should be, if you were with us, familiar with that. But we have the verse number 2 there for you in your notes. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, trials of various kinds. And so we see that life in a fallen world and the mess we is in is going to include a number of categories. I've got four of them from just that one verse down at the bottom of page 14. James chapter 1 and verse 2 tells us that trials are four things. They are, first of all, unwanted. That's why they're called trials. You know, you don't, you don't want it. You don't like it. It's difficult. So it's a difficult life situation that God allows into our lives for his good purpose. Now, James chapter 1 goes on to say that there's another player in this drama. The other player is Satan. And Satan wants to tempt you to, in that circumstance, not glean the good things that God has for you out of that, but rather for you to react to it in, an, in a sinful way and then make the matter even worse. That's why verse 13 of chapter 1 of James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. And the word for tempted in verse 13 of James 1 is the exact same word for trial in verse number 2. So James says, consider it pure joy when you're tempted. But the NIV uses the word trial, and it does it for this reason. Because God allowed that thing into your life not to tempt you to sin, but to try you to make you better. The same circumstance that God allows into your life to make you better, Satan wants to use to make you bitter and worse. And so you have these trials, and they have these four characteristics. They're unwanted. That's why they're called trials. But then they're also unavoidable. It says, consider it pure joy whenever. Now, it could say, consider it pure joy if you face trials, but it doesn't say if, it says when. Because these things are indeed um, going to happen. They are unavoidable. It's when, not if they happen. It's life in a fallen world. It happens to everybody. But they are also, according to that verse, unexpected. Whenever you face trials, and the word that's translated face, when you face these trials, sometimes translated when you fall into trials. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 11 and verse 30 where Jesus tells the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember that you have this traveler who is traveling along, and then the Bible says, Luke 11, verse 30, he fell among thieves. So the idea here, it just pictures you going through life, me going through life. And then something hits us, perhaps without warning. And we fall into now a trial. And so these are, they're unexpected. You just, you're just going along through life and you, and you face them. You fall into them. So I got great news for you. If you have just emerged from a trial, you're going to go into another one. I'm just here to lift you up, okay? 
But you guys have heard me say that even if I don't know you, I know something about you. And that is you're either in a trial, you've recently emerged from a trial, or you're fixing to go into a trial. One of those three, because that's the way trials are. And we see that from the fourth thing. You know, they're unexpected, you fall into them, and they are unlimited in their variety. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, many kinds, all shapes and sizes. So the trial may be a a diagnosis. The trial may be an economic hardship. The trial may be a relationship. We often think of the trial as a thing. The trial may be a person. The trial might be a spouse, a child, a boss at work. Any, any person can represent, can represent a trial. And so, you know, friends, if the Bible teaches what I've just laid out, and it does, that trials are life in a fallen world, then we all need to lose the idea that if you'll just give me a couple months, I'll get it together. Because you're going to face these kinds of things throughout life this side of heaven. So what we ought to do is take Scripture's good counsel and prepare ourselves for those and go through those the way Scripture instructs. So we've got general life hardships and limitations. That's part of the disorientation of living in a fallen world, top of page 15. We also have the voices and images of misleading counsel. So that's part of life in a fallen world, voices and images of misleading counsel. Now, you remember in the orientation that God gave to Adam and Eve, they had one voice and one counselor, God himself. The first voice they heard after having been created was the voice of God. I mean, I just love to think about being those guys and hearing the voice of God. And they respond to the voice of God. They, they know his voice. Some of you have heard me say, and they don't ask for his credentials. They don't say, how do I know you're God and not some imposter? Because they've never known an imposter. And they were created by this God. And importantly, they were created by this God to know God and to know the voice of their God. And so it is perfectly natural for them to be spoken to by God and to actually speak to God and to confer with God and to commune with God. It's all natural. And that all becomes very unnatural with the entrance of sin and the voice of a deceptive counselor. The first time in human history that another voice other than God's is heard is when the serpent speaks to the woman in the garden. And the serpent said to the woman, and the woman said to the serpent, and when you read what the serpent said and what the woman said, this is all false and misleading counsel. And now from a biblical worldview, friends, you and I come into this world as sons and daughters of Adam, and we come into this world with the same voice of that same deceptive counselor in the garden. But he now has a million megaphones to speak his false counsel. And you're presented with it every moment of every day.
I mean, just think about it. I mean, there's the obvious, there's, the, there's TV and there's the media. And, but, but then there's the accumulated foolishness of centuries of human depravity that you find in your friends at the water cooler at work, in the lunchroom at work, as you just spin your yarn and talk about the way the world works. And if you will listen carefully to what people say, it's amazing how false it is. What a false perspective it is. But you're surrounded by it in the form of people, in the form of images. And that's why the Bible says, top of page 15, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. It's what people say in their counsel, but it's also what people present. They don't say anything. They just present to you, this is the way life is supposed to be. This is the good life. This is what you should be about. This is what you should pursue. They are counseling you without saying anything. You know, a picture in a magazine that shows you a Ferrari. I'm just making up cars. But, you know, shows you this cool car. And then shows you a chick next to the car. Says to you guys, us guys, this is what you should be about. Doesn't have to say a thing. Just the picture is worth a thousand words. This is what you should pursue. And you, we, have that coming at us all the time, those images. And the question is, are we going to filter those images through a biblical view of the world? Are we going to absorb those images and say, yes, this is what I should pursue? And if you're not actively resisting that, actively resisting that, you will passively, passively absorb it. If you're not actively in God's Word giving you another set of counsel, you'll fall into that junk. Every one of us will. And so there are these voices and images of misleading counsel. That's why Romans 12, too, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve, that is show, demonstrate, prove that God's will is pleasing and good and perfect. Now, let me add to this voices of misleading counsel. You know, I've just talked about the media and in general, the way we are counseled just by walking through life and the images we see and the stuff that people informally say to us. But there's also formal false misleading counsel. And that comes in the form of books written to counsel you. And it comes in the form of people who call themselves counselors who say, I can tell you what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to fix it. And I just want to issue a warning to you to be careful about those from whom you get counsel. And a Christian counselor is not necessarily, not necessarily a biblical counselor. You see, because a biblical counseling has to do with the content of the counsel. It comes from the Bible. Christian counseling has to do with the character of the individual. This person is a Christian. But they may or may not use the Bible as the content of their counsel. 
You say, really, how could a Christian do that? Because it's a Christian who was educated in secular psychology. And you can baptize secular psychology. And that's what many Christian counselors have done. So I am suggesting to you, friends, be, be careful about that. Did you know, and by the way, um, uh, Lainey happens to be in here the day I'm going to say this, but Lainey's graduating, she's going to college, and I'm just trying to nudge her toward going into psychology because there is a crying need. So if Lainey doesn't do this, somebody else pick this up, okay? There's a crying need for believers who have a biblical worldview, who know how to apply the Bible to the needs and difficulties that people have in life. I mean, the, the opportunities for ministry are unlimited because the challenges are unlimited. And we need more people who are trained to help people with their problems and to do so from a biblical worldview. But not everybody does, okay? And the word psychology comes from suke, a Greek word, which means soul. And psychology means healer of the soul. Now, how are you going to heal the soul apart from the Word of God? You can't. So this is life in a fallen world, and the voices and the images of the misleading counsel, and they include, thirdly, page 15, people who directly wrong us. Now, again, this is one of those categories that we like. Yeah, you know, these people, those guys, what they did, what she did to me, what they ought to be doing that they're not doing. But it's a real category. Obviously, we've all been wronged by others, so it's a real category. But be careful that you don't expand the definition of wrong. You know, we say people directly wrong us. That happens because the, the Bible has a set of a standard of righteous behavior. And if people don't pursue that standard and they don't walk in that standard, then in their relations with other people, they will wrong them. So we've all been wronged. But we can expand, if we're not careful, the definition of what wrong is. Wrong is defined by God, not by us. So how can we expand the definition? By calling things wrong that we made up. Now, how do we do that? Here's how. We determine that somebody else is supposed to do stuff for us that we, that we need. I need you to do X. And if you don't do it, you've wronged me. So we've expanded the definition wrong. Now I'm ticked at stuff that supposedly you're supposed to do, but I made it up. Now how does that work? Here's how it goes. It starts with something I want. And that thing I want may be a good thing. It may be, it may be a neutral thing. But it's just something that I've determined I want. Well, so far, it's just a potential idol of your heart. I want it. Anything that I desire, anyone or anything that I desire, is a potential idol of the heart, right? So I want. But now here's where it gets tricky. In your mind, it can go to I need. Ah, the need thing. It's not just I want this. I need this. 
And in secular psychology and in secularized Christian psychology, the word need is used over and over and over again. That you have certain needs. This comes from Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy. Anybody know that? His hierarchy of needs. So you've got to have these needs met. Say they. So I want, but no, I don't just want, I need. And then it gets worse. Well, I need, I must. Well, this is all developing inside of you. This is all your thinking. I want, I need, I must. But now I'm in relationship with somebody who's supposed to provide what I must have. And then it goes to the fourth thing, you didn't. Said with a little bit of disdain, you didn't. And notice the pronouns change. It was first, I want, I need, I must. And now it goes to you. We got you involved. You didn't even know that I had all this junk developing in my head about what I want and I I need and I must have. But you didn't supply it. You should have. And as a result, you will pay. And that's the dynamic of relationships that people have over and over and over again. I was entitled to something, but I've been wronged, but I've expanded the definition of wrong to simply be the omission of something that I decided I should have. And I am telling you, be very careful about expanding the definition of wrong. There's enough real wrong (laughs) to go around without you expanding it. And then there is two more things. Satan. And Satan is plotting and Satan is scheming. And I said last week that in the New Testament, Satan is really sort of a bit player. He gets way too much airtime on Christian TV and in Christian talk. He's real. He's active. He's plotting. And he's stupid. Now, why do I say he's stupid? Because he's already been defeated from a biblical worldview. But he keeps on going. The Bible teaches that there is going to come a time in the future where Jesus will set up his kingdom. He will reign from a throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. The book of Revelation, last book in your Bible, says that at the end of a thousand years, Satan, who has been bound for that thousand years, will be loosed for a short time. So he's been bound for a thousand years. Now what do you think he would do after he's loosed? Jesus is on the throne in Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who bound him. So what's he going to do? And the Bible teaches he goes right back at it. And he, de- and he deceives and, and, and actually tries another rebellion, which is, of course, put down, and the eternal state begins. So Satan is active, and he is plotting, and he is stupid, and he keeps trying. But he is, he is behind the attempt to take the things that God allows into our lives and to redirect those toward his evil ends so that you don't receive the good that God intends in the difficult circumstance but rather become bitter instead of better. And then last, page 15. Our trials and our 
our, our difficulties and our, our battle, our struggle, includes, perhaps surprisingly, good things, blessings and successes and gifts. You say, how can good things be considered part of the struggle? Well, it's because the most important factor in how I deal with what confronts me, what I receive, what comes at me, whether good or bad, the most important factor is not the thing, whether it's good or bad. That's not the most important factor. The most important factor is the heart with which I approach it. And since we have deceptive hearts, since we have sinful hearts, even good things can cause us to contribute to more difficulty. Notice what Proverbs 30 says. Keep falsehood, Lord, and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty, poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much. Let me just stop there. You say, is that possible to have too much? You know, for us, for our thinking, it's not impossible to have too much. But I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or, conversely, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Here's someone who is very wise. That's why they get the right Proverbs. And they understand that it's not what happens to me. It's the heart I bring to what happens to me. And that can include can include the good things that happen. The Lord says to His people before they go into the promised land, observe the commands of the Lord, bottom of page 15, walking in His ways and revering Him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, pools of water, springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. But then he goes on to say, top of page 16, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And then says this, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, laws, decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise you will eat and be satisfied, build fine houses, settle down. And when your herds and flocks grow large, silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God has to issue that warning. Why? Because it's not what comes at us, it's the heart we bring to what comes at us. And then last but not least, reaping what has been sown. Life in a fallen world includes us having to grapple with the consequences of the sin that we've engaged in. And so all of these categories include fallenness, disorientation, the mess we is in. Now thanks be to God, He doesn't leave it there. And in Jesus Christ, He has offered the solution to all of that. And beginning next week, we're going to look at our third and final section, reorientation, centered on Christ and His mission in His world. So I hope you'll be able to come back. Let's ask the Lord to help us this week, grant us safety, and we'll gather next Lord's Day. Father, thank you for this time, the opportunity to consider how we are affected by and participate in 
fallenness. Lord, help us to have, have these truths reverberate in our minds this week. And help us to change our behavior. Help us to change our thinking as you are changing our hearts. And Lord, we ask you to go with us so that we can and help us to implement this not only internally, but having done so internally, to see it externalized in our relationships and our reactions to our circumstances and how we deal with them. We ask you, Lord, to grant us safety and grant us the opportunity to meet again next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.